0: Good morning, Grace Gospel Church. Isn't it wonderful, this gift that we've received in Christ Jesus, and that now we get to offer all. We get to offer all to the one who saves. And we get to continue doing that now. We now offer our minds before him, our attention before him, and he gives us more revelation of himself. What a gracious, wonderful God it is that we serve Last time we talked, we learned that the Lord was among his people and that he was providing for their needs, that he is ever present to those that are his, redeeming even our self inflicted mess. He's amongst his people. He's so, so gracious to us. And today we'll continue to learn about God's revealed character in the scripture. And we see another profound aspect of what relationship with this God looks like, with what is available to you and I this morning. And indeed, this is because of his unchanging character. How he interacts with Israel offers insight into how he interacts with us today and how he helps, helps us and is working, uh, working now in our lives And though we're not in identical situations, there is truth revealed about who God is. Who God was is who he is. And we can trust what's been revealed in Scripture even now. Friends, there's nothing more applicational, I can tell you, than to trust the truth concerning what God has revealed in this book There is nothing more applicational than just trusting and meditating and mulling over who he is in your mind. That will affect everything. The application will just be all over once you start trusting this stuff. And here is what's revealed about our God in scripture this morning He's shown to be the ultimate source of victory and protection, working through his chosen people. We've seen that he's a provider. We've seen that he's amidst, uh, amongst his people. And now we recognize him as victorious against threats. A God who is our very banner. Not only is he amongst his people, he's working through his people as well. And so now, uh, let's stand if we're able and read the text this morning and see what God uh, is going to reveal to us. From Exodus chapter 17 verses 8 through 16, the word of God says this. Then then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on top of the hill, on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did just as Moses told him and fought against Amalek, and Moses Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is My Banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn, The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come before you now and we are just so thankful for sending your son, God, and we pray that we would understand more, more deeply who you are as you've revealed yourself in this this text, Lord, that we would um, delight in you, glorify you, and be changed by this word, O oh God, so we may serve your son ever, ever more, Vigorously and with more zeal and passion. Lord, thank you for this word. Let it transform our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. You may all be seated. So the text describes sort of a, a battle plan, its execution, and a memorialization of what had taken place. Now, what's interesting to me is that God did not instantly strike down the Amalekites with lightning. Now, this is God we're talking about. He could have definitely done that. Here are the raiders, boom, they're gone. Let's move on. <laughs> he did not cause all of the Amalekites, to individuals in the army to have heart attacks and just fall flat down and die. Instead, he reveals a different aspect of how he works amongst his people. And what is recorded in the text is various levels of human participation in God granting the victory to Israel. You see, it's, it's clear that God is the one waging war against Amalek from verse 14 and verse 16. It makes it clear that this is, this is God's doing. It's clear that he is the banner of Israel. In verse 15, he is the victory granter. He is the force behind it all. Without him, these, these were trained nomadic raiders. They would have defeated these, these freely, uh, freshly released slaves And I think if an insurance agent was investigating this situation to see if there's any outside source of help, their conclusion would be, yeah, there must be some kind of being giving this victory to Israel. It's clear that God is the one granting this victory. Yet, how he does it is very unique. God has decided to sovereignly give victory to his people through variously using his people. And, and that's right, that's not needlessly redundant. He's using his people to bring about this victory. He's using their various roles, their cooperation with him to grant the victory. And this once again reveals a very deep relationship that this God has with people who he has chosen. And it reveals the deepness he has with you and I, friends, if you are a part of his chosen This this reveals how our God works, and he works through us. What a grace. Here is how God is revealed. God is revealed as the true source of victory and protection for his people, who works through his people. That is, in protecting his people, he graciously chooses to partner with us. He partners with Joshua and the soldiers. He partners with with Moses as as the leader of the people of Israel. He partners with Aaron and Hur as supports. These are all means that God was using in the narrative to provide the victory for his people. And so we see something very interesting. We see our participation, yet somehow it is God who still gets the glory. He is still the banner of his people. For without him as that, as that banner, they surely would have failed. Being God's people, it means that God is going to protect you and he's going to work through you. Thus, I believe this message is going to be broken up into two sections. We'll see first in verses 8 through 13 that God gives victory to his people through his people. And then in 14 through 16, we'll see that it is God who is memorialized as the true protector of his people. He is the one who gets the credit so let's look at these two points first God gives victory to his people through his people and here is verse 8 says then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim now who is Amalek according to Genesis chapter 36 he is a descendant of Esau Later, in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, we see a description of Amalek as this thorn in Israel's side. They are attacking these stragglers that are in the back as they travel onward. And it also says in that text in Deuteronomy that Amalek did not fear God. These were ruthless people. These were nomadic raiding people. These were fierce, trained raiders who preyed upon the weak. They're certainly not operating as things ought to be in God's grand scheme of things. They are sinful, wicked raiders who do not fear the Lord. Now, recall that Israel was commanded to journey through the wilderness in stages, according to 17, verse 1. They're not rushing through the wilderness and trying to avoid these raiders. They're journeying in stages, as the Lord had commanded. Now, imagine you have a group of untrained, newly freed slaves with Egyptian riches, mind you. And you're not necessarily... In a huge rush, you're journeying in stages according to the command of the Lord. You are definitely going to attract some of those nomadic raiders, aren't you? (laughs) This was easy pickings for them. And so at Rephidim, this camp where God previously provided water, Amalek makes their attack on Israel. Amalek unprovokedly attacks Israel. And again, remember that this journey was according to the command of the Lord in these stages. God is trying I think to reveal something to his people. He is trying to show them that he is that banner for his people. That he is their protector. That And that if Amalek was going to attack Israel, there was going to be consequences for Amalek. And we see that clear in verses 14 through 16. He's trying to show himself to be Israel's God, to be that protector, to be that banner. He's trying to teach them more about himself in this wilderness experience and grow his people relationally to trust God as their protector who will wipe out their enemies when they are attacked from the outside. And indeed, friends, on our spiritual journeys, we often encounter outside trouble, don't we? We may encounter persecutions in various degrees. The wicked will seek to prey on us in various ways. As believers who are progressing in these spiritual journeys, it's inevitable that we will face external challenges in this life. The difficulties are all around us. Friends, if you're a Christian, the Bible's clear in 2 Timothy 3. Everyone who wants to live a godly life is going to be persecuted. And in those moments of persecution, what will you do? Will you trust, too, that God is your banner? That he is your victory? That he is your covenant partner who's going to take care of you? Do you believe that he sees you and is working out every detail, even when things are against against? against you and the odds are not in your favor like they were here in Israel? Friends, do not miss the opportunity to place greater trust in God the banner, greater trust in God, our protector, God, the one who grants us victory. Don't miss the opportunity to believe in the promises he has for you and watch them come about. Even in John 16, Jesus spoke of the scattering of disciples. He tells them, tribulation's coming for you. But he says, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Christ is our victory. Even now, friends, whatever we're facing, we have a a God who grants us victory. One who has given us victory in Christ Jesus over all things, even death itself. Cannot overcome the saint, cannot overcome those who are his. In the end, any enemy we encounter, even death, will be bowing before that risen Savior. No army, past, present, or future, can overcome. His his power is, is immense, and this is our God, this is our banner. This is the one who gives us victory. Do you trust that? Do you believe that? Understanding that truth is so important, friends, to walk in that truth. Though we are weary in this world, assuredly surely there's one who grants us victory. Victory in Christ Jesus. And so, yes, we will encounter unprovoked outside trouble In this world, but we will also have a chance to trust God and to be used by God. Verse 9, it says, So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us to go out, fight against Amalek. So notice that it begins here. They're being attacked, and Moses starts strategizing They're they're currently under attack, and Moses, though but a man, is used by God to help strategize the plan for the victory that God would give. God, through Moses, is moving the chess pieces to where they must be for the perfect checkmate against Amalek. God is using the wisdom of leadership to bring about this victory. Moses, he was spoken to by God in, in Exodus Uh, earlier on, right, at the burning bush. And God says, you will worship me at this mountain. And Moses believed that. And so as Amalek is attacking, Moses knows that they're not going to succumb to these, these wicked outside forces. Moses knows he's going to worship God with his people on that mountain. And so he starts strategizing, saying, all right, Joshua, you go and fight these people. Go and take care of these these wicked Amalekites. God is using his wisdom here to help bring about the victory. And, friends, I I want us to notice something here, especially us young people who want to often direct ourselves instead of being directed by those who God has put above us. Scripture is clear every authority is placed there by God. Moses was placed in this position by God for a purpose. Our elders here in this church are placed in their positions by God for a purpose. And the strategy for victory is not going to be apart from their wisdom. God wants to use them. And God wants to use you too. And it's going to come in part from wisdom of those who God has placed above us. That's in part where the victory comes from. That is what God used here. He used Moses' leadership. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that every leader is infallible, uh, but I am saying we need to strategize with these people Because they are wise and they have essential insight to offer. They can help mobilize God's people in the right places for what God's trying to do. And again, this doesn't mean we can't, we're not allowed to talk about concerns with our leaders and certainly we shouldn't idolize our leaders in unhealthy ways, but there is a structure that God puts in place and it's healthy and he uses it just as he did here in the text. If indeed the New Testament teaches that the local church has elders and we ought to learn and we ought to be submissive to these folks so long as what they're saying is in accordance with God's revealed word in scripture. And thank God he has given us such wise leadership here at Grace Gospel Church. These men are gifted People who want to see the victory in our lives, who wants wants to see God move through us and among us and work work among us. So please understand, God directs his people to victory in part through leadership here. That's one of the, the, the tools that God is using here. He's using Moses. But he's also directing his people, all of his people, where they must be for the victory. Verse nine, so Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on top of the hill. Then later on in verse 10, we see who else goes up on that hill with him. It's Aaron and Hur. They also go up to the top of the hill. So here's something interesting, right? Moses keenly recognizes he is not a warrior leader. He's not a warrior. This guy is 80 years old at this point, plus probably a few. His fighting days, they're over. He plans on being on that hill, not on that battleground. Yet Moses, he doesn't sit back. He doesn't let chaos ensue. He uses his wisdom and his leadership to strategize, recognizing the strengths of others. Moses finds Joshua and instructs him to lead the battle on the ground, to choose men to fight on the ground at Israel or to protect Israel. And this is the first mention of Joshua in the Bible. And this is the same man, the same Joshua, who would succeed Moses and who would be handed that torch in Numbers chapter 27. This is the same Joshua who would later be the, one of the two 12 spies to come back with that report about the, uh, the land of Canaan and say, we can take these guys, God is on our side. This is the same Joshua who would later militarily lead his people, uh, Israel, God's people, into the Canaan uh, promised land through uh, battle. This Joshua, you see, has a very different skill set than Moses. And so Moses, I think, was recognizing that. And he instructs Joshua, choose fighting men and lead the battle on the ground. And Moses, he knows where he belongs too. He's stationed at the top of the hill with the staff of God as an intercessor, extending himself towards God for the victory. Moreover, again, we see God put these supports of Aaron and her, also positioned in the right spot at the right time for the victory to be granted to the people. The point is this. God is using everyone in this process to grant the victory through a unique collaboration of different skill sets and talents. He's moving again the chess pieces to just the right spot to checkmate Amalek. He's sovereignly and actively using his people in unique ways, making sure they are going to be just where they need to be. And this is in fact a a beautiful process that God did not use lightning bolts to take care of Amalek. He collectively used his people for the victory. And friends, likewise here at this church and at the church at large, we are not independent of one another. And he wants to move each person to where they ought to go for the mission of the church in reaching the nations for the gospel of Jesus Christ and making disciples We all have something to offer. Some of us might be on the battleground. Some of us might be intercessors. Some of us might be helpers like Aaron and her. But together, God moves among the people group and uses them to bring about his will. And this, friends, is amazing. This isn't lame lightning bolts. He's using humans. He's using you and I, he's using his body, the church, to go about and do his will. We are in some mysterious way granted to be a part of the providential, sovereign workings of the Lord. This should melt our minds that each one here has a special role to play and that God is moving us and directing us as the head of the church he is the head, we are the body. As it says in 1 Corinthians 12, right? Just as one, uh, for just as the body is one and yet many parts, and all parts of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. He is the head that controls and uses the body. He is moving his people where they must go, directing them. Christ too, again, controls us, positions us where he wants us. And that victory, friends, comes from God directing us in this way. We also see that God gives a victory through obedience to instructions. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. Imagine if Joshua had heard this news, right? Moses says, hey, I want you to go and find these fighting men and then go on the ground. He says, "Mm, I don't really know. I'm not really interested in that. I'm going to go home and make cookies. Do right? you think there's going to be a victory there? Doesn't seem likely. When Moses gives the strategy plan, Joshua listens. Now, mind you, again, consider that that actually took faith as well. Joshua, again, he's he, these are... People, all of Israel, untrained, newly freed slaves, and they're going against Am- Amalekites who were trained nomadic raiders who knew the land, literally battled for a living to, to get all of their things, right? And now, here's Israel going up against these people. Joshua could have easily fell into a lack of faith in this plan, in the instructions, and what, what was told to him, but instead, he acts on it. He does what he's told he obeys the instructions and this also contributed to the victory friends the text says joshua did as moses told him he obeyed and through that obedience verse 13 tells us joshua overwhelmed amalek and his people with the edge of the sword had joshua disobeyed verse 13 would not be in the bible Instead, Joshua trusts and obeys. And indeed too, friends, we must learn to trust and obey the instructions we have been given. We have a glorious book of instruction. A glorious book that has been given to us that we may obey it and may too have victory. A glorious plan of victory and oftentimes it's collecting dust. Some of us are so frustrated and so unhappy and waiting for where's the victory, God? Where's the victory? And there's all of these pressures, pressures surrounding us. Friends, pick up that book of holy revelation, that, that book of glorious instruction for your life, and read it. And don't just read it, do as Joshua did. Do it. Listen to the instructions. Pick up that instruction manual. There used to be an old acronym, B-I-B-L-E, Believers Instructions Before Leaving Earth. It's our instruction book, friends. Don't just be a hearer, be a doer. Trust the plan. Trust the plan. Follow what scripture says. Trust the book and act upon it. Trust it enough to evangelize to your friends at work trust it enough to, to be baptized, trust it enough to obey your elders, trust it enough to have faith and to act upon it in your day-to-day life. Whatever it says, this in part is how the victory was granted to the people of God. We also see that God gives a miraculous victory through dependence upon him. So in one sense, there's sort of these actions. In another sense, this is a total miracle of God that this is even being done. Verse nine says, tomorrow, this is Moses speaking, I will station myself on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So it came about when Moses held up his hand, or held his hand up, that Israel prevailed, and when he let it down, Amalek prevailed. Remember again who these folks were. The Amalekites, professionally trained raiders combating, again, with nomadic understanding of the land, everything, and they're going against these untrained, freely, you know, newly freed slaves. So we have to ask ourselves, well, where is this victory really coming from in the text? Yes, God's using human instruments. Yes, there's people on the ground battling and that was necessary, but but I believe really what we see here is a highlight of dependence upon the Lord for the victory. Again, I say if an insurance fraud agent was investigating This, to see if there's outside intervention. It is clear that the correlation, again, between Moses' hands being lifted high and the victory being granted and them being down, that there must be some kind of greater person, force, God, at play here, right? There is God giving this victory. This is a miracle, Now, it's important to note a few things. First, that he is taking the staff of God with him. This is, again, that staff, that that reminder of what God has miraculously done in the past as he has depended on him to bring about these victories. It's the same staff used in many past miracles. The same staff from chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, where God uses it to display his presence uh, that's going to go with Moses. It's the same staff that was thrown onto the ground and became the serpent in chapter 7, verse 9. The same staff that was used to turn the river into blood in chapter 7, verse 20. It's the same staff that struck the dirt and turned turned something into gnats in chapter 8, verse 17. The same staff that was used to part that Red Sea in chapter 14. The same staff even just used just in this chapter in verse 5 to give water to to the people of Israel. You see, Moses was not going to the top of that hill just to sit back and watch. He was going to the top of that hill to actively depend on God for a miracle. To depend on God for a miracle. That's, That's why I believe that staff was brought. As a reminder, God has a plan. He is with us. And he is going to miraculously bring about our victory. And we also see that Moses, he's on this hill, he's holding up his hand, and this makes Israel win the battle below. He puts down his hand, and they lose. This posture of raised hands is somehow related to victory. That's not how war works. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that. Um, I don't know if there's any military officers or commanders who have hand-lifting duty to ensure victory. That's not how the world works. It's not how war works. So what's going on here? We have one's hands elevated. Moses has his hands raised towards towards God. And this was a Hebrew posture of prayer and perhaps surrender, too. We're familiar with this somewhat. When we worship God, we raise our hands. Some of us, when we pray, we raise our hands. This was to the posture of prayer for the Israelites. We see this mentioned in Psalm 63:4, Psalm 141, 2, Lamentations. Many other verses speak of raising hands as a sign of prayer to God. And so I think this is probably indicative that Moses is praying here. Now, some aren't sure if it's, exp- if it's really praying that's going on because they don't, don't see the word prayer explicitly used in the text. But I think regard- regardless, the text is presuming something uh, very important here, and that is that Moses is plugging into heaven's power and resources. He is plugging into the resources of God, which seems to me to be what prayer often is. <laughs> It's not Moses' hands in and of themselves that are causing a victory. He's not a magician. It's God sovereignly choosing to use Moses and even just this posture of raised hands and, and his dependent posture in conjunction with what's going on in the battle below to show that it is God indeed who is bringing this victory and no man. Yes, Moses is doing something. He's raising his hands Doing so, though, this is a a gesture of acknowledging God. It is acknowledging God as the source of Israel's strength. And friends, similar for us too, the only way we will get victory is through dependence upon the Lord. It comes as we lift our hands knowing that it is He who powerfully moves on our behalf. Yes, we strategize and yes, we have leadership, and yes we must obey as Joshua did and all of that was done in the text but importantly none of those things are done apart from God's miraculous intervention that caused this victory i'm reminded of psalm 127:1 it says unless the lord builds the house they who labor uh, who build it labor in vain the watchmen stay awake in vain if not for the lord the victory is directly correlated in a way that is clear in the text, but in a posture of dependence, a posture of prayer, a posture of acknowledging God, acknowledging something bigger than himself, bigger than all these strategies they had going on. Moses is, is, has this posture of dependence, posture, recognizing where this victory is really coming from. It was God who was at work granting the victory victory. So what we see in Moses, I think, is a physical representation of continued dependence in God. In in one sense, yes, man does things. In another sense, it is the work of God. And Moses bringing that staff, being in that posture, reveals who the true worker is behind all of these things. And I think we'll see that later on as well. The most important thing for us, friends, is to have this posture in our hearts always. A posture of prayer a posture of recognizing where the true victory comes from, to never get full of ourselves, to know the one who brings our victories. Friends, when things get rough, when we encounter problems, indeed, we strategize, yes, uh, we do things, but are we good at praying? Are we good at depending upon the Lord? Do we recognize that the true power and victory comes not from earthly wisdom, it comes from him? It's not the strategy on the battlefield. Again, these guys would not have stood a chance against the Amalekites. It was prayer. It was acknowledging God as God. Acknowledging and seeking his divine intervention that 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 victory came through. Again, some of us struggle today. Overwhelmed by all of these things, these different pressures, things going on in our lives... Don't forget this aspect of how God gave the victory. He gave it through prayer. He gave it through depending upon him. I pray we talk to him. That we, we, don't, we bring our problems before him. He wants that. That's what a relationship looks like. Don't try this on your own. He's your victory. He's your banner. Talk to him. Rely on him. He will give you the victory through depending upon himself. We also see it comes through depending on one another. Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill, but Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him and sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus the hands were steady until the sun set. See, Moses didn't go alone either, but he took with him his brother Aaron and her. Now we've heard of Aaron. Aaron is the, the brother of Moses and he will take up a later on a priestly role in Israel. but who is her? Uh, now we don't really have a lot of scripture on this character. Um, he does stay with Aaron in Exodus 24 during the prolonged absence of Moses at, at Sinai. Uh, perhaps he's the grandson of Bazalel, the foreman overseeing the tabernacle's construction. Uh, Jewish legend says that he married Moses' sister, so this might be a brother-in-law. In In any case, it's clear that this character, whoever he was, alongside Aaron, was most importantly a helper in bringing forth the victory. A helper in bringing forth the victory. Both of them, as Moses' hands grow weary, they're there to help. And think about it, again, we already talked about Moses' age. He is an 80-year-old man, and he is lifting up his hands for hours and hours, potentially days, as these armies are battling it out. Now, if I asked all of us to, at the beginning of the sermon, all right, everybody lift your hands up and leave them there. Some of us, by just the end of this sermon, you're going to be feeling all sorts of burning right about here right and this is an 80 year old guy who's who's lived a long life now and now he's doing this during a whole battle his arms are tired his hands are growing heavy which is what the scripture says and even with this miracle that's associated with lifting up the hands putting them down god is still showing oh it's not about your hands moses your volition is too weak your your body is too weak it's about me granting this victory. And so as his hands grow tired, his faithful friends help. And they, they first get a stone, which who knows how big this is, something that he had to sit on, so he'll probably wait a little bit. They move it over, place him on it, and then each get on one side and hold up his arms. Oh, what a beautiful picture of the body of Christ and how, how we operate together. I was even just thinking even just today as we were praying in the prayer room earlier how important it is that we had brothers and sisters praying for this message. Lifting up hands so that God can move. Not so that a man can move but so that God can do something here this morning. Oh, we each have some some kind of role to play. There's no lone rangers in the Christian life. Moses' again frailty and volition alone was not going to grant that. That victory is too old, too weak. Had God not orchestrated Aaron and Hur to go up with him, they would have lost. Again, another contributing factor to the victory. And as Galatians 6 says, we are to bear one another's burdens, thereby fulfilling the law of Christ. One body who need one another to work as God has intended Indeed, we depend on God, but indeed, sometimes depending on God will take the shape of depending on another. For God is miraculously at work in his body and amongst his people. Friends, don't be that Lone Ranger. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. There's no such thing as men of God who don't depend on others. God wants his body to be one of such deep unity that will involve dependence on one another. One of the enemy's tactics, I believe, is to try to separate the body of Christ, to get us isolated so in these moments where we're struggling, where maybe our hands are heavy and tired, that we, we don't get that victory that God intends for us to have. And Hebrews is, is clear. Do not forsake the assembling. We need one another more than we could possibly imagine. We cannot delusion ourselves to thinking That it's just us and nobody else has a role to play in what God is doing. Joshua had had the army, Moses and Aaron and her. They all were collectively used as the means by which God brought this victory. And again, we see this uh, aspect of Joshua come out in uh, verse 13. It says 3 there, should say 13. It says, so Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Interestingly, all these events that are taking place on the hill, then it kind of shifts in the story to what's going on with Joshua. And it says, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek with the edge of the sword. Though there was a massive miracle taking place on top of this hill with Moses and Aaron according to the Bible, it it doesn't in any way discredit what Joshua's doing here on the ground as important. If, again, Moses had not prayed for Israel, they would have been defeated. If Aaron and Hur were not there lifting the hands, Israel would have been defeated. If Joshua and the army were not there fighting back the Amalekites, they would have been defeated. And so here we see that Joshua, he has this active participation. He, it says Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. It wasn't just, all right, lift up your hands and do nothing. All right, let's just just pray, and um, then we'll kind of do like a little lazy kind of love. <laughs> right? It was active participation. They fought. God used both here for the victory. He didn't have to, but he did. And that's telling of how he works. This is what's revealed in Scripture. This is who He is. He uses everybody. He uses prayer and he uses active participation. God has a wonderful work and man has a wonderful cooperation. God works, uh, or man works, God gives the victory. But he uses humans, again, not lightning bolts, to do the job. And that, again, is an awesome, gracious gift. Pray, yes, but also act. Do something. The two aren't mutually exclusive. Who gave you the body to act? It's God. Right? God gives all good gifts. He gives us all skills we have, all talents we have. Do it. Don't rely on it and rely on it on yourself. Pray and act. Where's the contradiction? I don't see one. You can do both, right? I can do both. Don't believe the false dilemma that it's one or the other. I see God acting both. He's telling, he has people doing both here. So if you're skilled to battle, go to battle. If you're old and maybe bad at speaking and you're not a a good fighter, but you can intercede and pray, intercede. If you have wisdom, share it and direct. If you're a helper, then help. God has given you the gift of helps. Do it. But no matter what it is, know that it is God who is granting the victory. Next we see again that it is in fact God who is responsible for all this for God is the one memorialized. He's the one remembered as the true protector of his people. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Finally in this passage, the Lord speaks and it is after the battle And it is after everyone has collaboratively strategized and had this this battle be a success, now we see the Lord command Moses to write a book of memorial. And this would allow other future generations to know what God had done that day and to know what he had promised to do to the Amalekites for their folly. And interestingly it says here it was to be recited to Joshua. And perhaps this is because Joshua was on the ground um, maybe, you know, Moses, Aaron, her, they might have been really, really aware of the miracle God was doing because, you know, raising your arms isn't a good battle strategy. So they kind of inferred, like, oh, God must be doing something. But Joshua, maybe he didn't know. I don't know. The text doesn't really say whether that was visible to him or not. But regardless, we do see a command recite it, speak it to Joshua, make sure he knows that there is a memorial that will be put in place for what's happened and what will happen. Which is interesting. And this memorial, by the way, it was not a memorial of Joshua's great victory or Moses' victory or Aaron or hers, but of the Lord's victory and his plan to judge Amalek for what was done to his people. It's important to know, again, God talking here and he's talking in the first person. This is a work he himself will do. Now, interestingly, again, we don't see lightning bolts destroy Amalekites. We see battles. We see people. And later on, we'll see Samuel, for example, destroy Agag, a descendant of the Amalekites, and God's gonna take credit. The only explanation, I think, is that God chooses in grace to use human instruments to do this work. Friends, we must remember that though we work It is God working through us. That we may learn to praise him and be in awe of this fact that God uses you and I. Though we may do things, it is he who gets memorialized for his work, for what he is doing. Never take credit for any good thing you do, for it all comes from him. In heaven, we will forever be singing the praises of the work that he has done. Ultimately, on the cross, and then all the works that that we do, really, it's just stuff that he was doing through us. And so we praise him for that, too. We must speak not of our talents, not of our, our gifts, but rather we must remember his goodness. He's the gift giver. He's the one who uses these things. It's not the works we do. It's the works God has done and the promises he has made. And we must meditate on these things and quite honestly be in awe that he's chosen to let us participate in some way. God is memorialized. God and what he, is, he does and what he will do is what is written. We also see that God wants his people to know he is a judge. He says, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Verse 16 it says, the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Interestingly, what is entailed in the nature of this memorial and this altar that's built is that God is going to judge those who sinned. That he will strike down those who contributed to making things be what they ought not to be. He loves his people, Israel. He wants them to flourish. And the Amalekites, they came, they sinned, and they tried to ruin that. They warped God's picture of what, what he was wanted to do with his people and what he still did with his people, by the way. And so God here, he promises judgment. Judgment for sin. These Amalekites who thought that Israel was, were easy pickings for their raids, they messed with the wrong group of people because they messed with God's people. This people group... Has a God, right? Israel has a God. We have a God who is infinite in power and promises to protect us. And that unprovoked attack against Israel, it meant certain doom for Amalek. They're on God's dad list now. God intends to wipe these folks out for their folly. And we see that intention made clear here that God is the judge of sin. And again, even later on in 1 Samuel 15, we see a command from God, destroy these people, get rid of them. And Saul, we know, disobeyed that command. And so the the spirit left him and God established a new leader. But God did use Samuel again to put King Agag, that descendant of Amalek, to death. The point is, is here that this attack against The children against those who he was a covenant partner with provoked God to action, and he was judging sin. Again, first person language here I will destroy these people, I will blot them out in verse 14. He had a relational agreement as the protector of Israel, he was going to see that through. An attack against his people was an attack against him, and so it must be judged. This is a zealous God. This is the protector God. This is our God. But thanks be to Christ. And by the way, (laughs) we've all kind of acted like Amalek at times, haven't we? We've done things and made things the way they ought not be. We've, We've sought evil and pleasure and we're worthy of judgment. But instead of utterly wiping us out, he's extended his grace towards us through Christ Jesus. And says, I want you who were spitting on me, trying to overthrow me, I want you to be my people too. I want to use you and work through you. Even though we are worthy of judgment. This is what's revealed in the New Testament through Christ, through that this new covenant that he invites each and every person to in this, this room, not judgment. Though he is the judge and is able to judge, he wants you to be his people. He wants you to be invited to that. Thanks be to Christ, he's made a way for us to enter into the kingdom of God, that we are citizens of heaven. We are the people of God. We are the one he is zealous for. We are the people he wants to flourish and do well. And if you are in Christ, this judge is not against you, but he becomes for you. However, if you're not in Christ, friend, I urge you to repent. And I urge you to accept that invitation to let this God be your God too. So he can bless you. So he can work through you. This is the God we serve. Lastly, we see that God is the banner of his people who gives them their very identity. Moses, he built an altar and named it the Lord is my banner. Moses' act aligns with uh, the tradition of past patriarchs like Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They all built altars to commemorate God and his blessing. And Moses establishes a place for the people to recall what happened and to worship. And what is being remembered here? What is, what is it that's being emphasized? It's that they that the Lord is their banner. The Lord is my banner. That's what it was named. A banner, again, akin to a flag, bears unique emblems and colors, identifying a particular people group. If you see the American flag, you know, oh, this is uh, an American, right? Also, uh, just during these times, too, they were especially used during during war to show symbolically who they were that they were a unique people group used in memorials it is a flag representing a, a people group and it is what they are sort of defined by and united in and in this case these people they're not united by colors or united by symbols they didn't put a, a you know a symbol of some kind of animal on there. They named it, the Lord is my banner. Yahweh, I am. That is who defined his people. And oh, to be defined by that. That you, a human creature, that I, a human creature, have the Lord as our banner, as our symbol of who we are. To be associated with the God of the whole universe. To bear his unique emblem. Oh, that he is our great banner. And that it is Christ himself who unites us. Christ himself who defines his people. That we are the body, he is the head. And that he has chosen to associate himself with us. And us with him in such a glorious union. That the Lord is our banner. You see, the defining characteristic of Israel was not their strength. It was, you know, they didn't put a symbol of an animal up there. They didn't put a picture of Moses there, you know, with his thumbs up. They didn't put Joshua there or Aaron or her. What they do is they say, they make this altar, Moses makes this altar, says the Lord is my banner. We are the people of God. He gives identity to his people. There's a lot of facts about us skills, talents, different things, hair color, the way we look, whatever. Really, the most important thing that makes us unique is the fact that the Lord is our banner. He is our identity, the thing that makes us truly united and unique. That he goes before us in war and in peace. That he is our protector who grants us our victory. And friends, he too can be your banner. He can go before you and protect you, and save you, and grant you victory. And most of all, he is the one who grants victory over our greatest enemy, sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray he, too, would be your God, that he would be your banner, your identity, the one who gives you your victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and we thank you so much for this word. We thank you, God, that you have chosen for yourself a people, oh, Lord, and that you bless that people with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. I pray for those who don't know you in this room and those who are listening, God, that they would come to know you and experience you as God the protector. Oh, that you are God who grants victory, that they would know this truth deeply. Oh, Lord, and they would be used by you and they would have this deep union with you that you yourself invite them into, God. There is nothing more precious, nothing more important. We thank you for this gift, God. And we pray that we would be motivated now to live this truth, God, that you are our banner as we go about our days. We pray this now in Christ's name, amen.